0: This is Forest Fireside Chats, a podcast produced by Elsa Soderstrom and hosted by Cora Martin. With special support from Emma Waters and Meredith Preve. Keep listening to gain a new outlook that we hope will expand, uplift, and brighten the U.S. environmental movement. Welcome back to Forest Fireside Chats. I'm again joined here with Elsa uh, to introduce the June episode. Elsa, tell me what you've been up to and how things have been in Ely.
1: Hey, Cora. I have been busy in and out of the woods, honestly. It's been a lot of fun. After your mom visited, I had a friend from high school come up with some of his best friends from college. And so I got to go in with them for 2 days and then they were out for like 6 and so got to see them and they stayed with me before and after their trip and then I guided a 6-day trip in one of my favorite areas so that was super fun and I'm camping again this week Wednesday through Friday with two of my friends. And oh yeah, it's we have a big fire ban up here right now cuz it's been super dry so that's a big bummer cuz normally it doesn't happen this early on in the season. But we just finally got rain for the first time in a month this past weekend. So hopefully that trend continues.
0: Do you feel like it's hard to separate work from enjoyment now that your enjoyment has become your work? Like, do you feel like it, you still enjoy like going out on trips and stuff, considering it is your job?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. This was my first time, like the six day trip I was talking about it was my first time summer guiding overnight trips cuz I did it this past winter but it's definitely a lot lonelier compared to going with your friends but it's still i i mean i'm still getting paid to camp and that's incredible and in like my favorite place and it's good because it allows for a lot more self-reflection i think like I had a lot of time to journal and to read when I wasn't like doing chores so yeah definitely still enjoyed it just a different sort of experience of course being in the woods but yeah i just feel really fortunate to be able to do this as my job
0: yeah i'm very jealous but i'm very happy for you
1: how are you doing
0: i'm doing well i have spent the last couple of weeks in dc which has been nice considering i was traveling so much in may but i'm actually going home to kansas city next or this friday I'm going to be there for the 4th of July and for Taylor Swift.
1: And you just went to a boy genius concert?
0: Yes, yes, I Elsa and I are huge boy genius fans. When we were up in Minnesota, we were chatting. It was like the first day and I think we were like really debriefing our lives. And this one part of this Boy Genius song came on and I was like, can we take a pause and just listen for a second? And we just, it, it was it was a beautiful moment. I love that you love Boy Genius.
1: <laughs> and I didn't realize how so much she loved Boy Genius. So it was just really funny and totally made sense. We would stop this serious conversation to finish out the, the
0: song. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the concert was amazing. It was, I think it would—it's the third best concert of my life. Phoebe Bridgers was like, she was so ethereal. It was so beautiful. Oh my gosh. And Elsa, I owe you videos. I owe you videos. I'm going to send those right after this.
1: So we have some uh, fundraising going on for our podcast. When we started, we had a GoFundMe that we unfortunately just did not take care of and did not utilize. And so we're getting back on that track. And that's going to be alongside our emails we're going to have monthly newsletters and that's what Meredith is working on and I'm really excited about those because Gord explained this in our last episode but instead of doing news in our episodes they are going to be summarized in this newsletter and then you can click on the link and read more about it if you want but it'll be fun to just have a more written companion to our episodes and have that option for people as well.
0: Yeah, so if you're interested in signing up for the newsletter, if you're interested in donating to the GoFundMe and getting a Forest Fireside Chats sticker, just go to our Instagram. It's just Forest Fireside Chats and all the information will be posted there hopefully in the next in the next week. Yeah, so this month's episode we got to speak with a young entrepreneur named Tyler Bernstein. My roommate ran into this guy in the Straits of D.C., and he ended up being the perfect person to talk to on the podcast. So she got his number and shared it with me. We were really lucky to get to speak with him. So I really hope you enjoy hearing about his startup that just received a $30 million grant from the Department of Defense to create the first carbon-free satellite that will be put up in space by DOD.
1: Also so fun to highlight someone who's our age.
0: (laughs) I know, he's 25.
1: Yeah, heck yeah. Look at that. We can be doing stuff too.
0: Thank you all so much, as always, for listening. Elsa, thank you for joining. I'm really hoping you guys like this episode. It's going to be a bit different than than usual, but we're excited with these changes. Thank you, Tyler, so much for being here. I'm going to quickly introduce you. Tyler Bernstein is the 25-year-old CEO and founder of Xeno Power, a company designed to provide clean nuclear energy using a next-generation radioisotope power system. The compact, lightweight system can safely turn nuclear waste into a steady supply of energy operating from anywhere from the bottom of the ocean to the surface of the moon. Bernstein was named one of Forbes' 30 Under 30 in 2019, along with his co-founder, Jonathan Siegel. Forbes wrote, One of their systems, the size of a window air conditioner, could potentially power a building for decades. Four years later, Zeno is fully operational, working with partners across the US Department of Defense. The company actually recently received a $30 million grant from DOD and private investors to build the first commercially developed nuclear-powered satellite by 2025. I am thrilled to be able to speak with Tyler today to discuss what this type of energy transformation could mean for climate change, sustainable development, and the long-term viability of carbon-free resilient nuclear power. Okay, well, very impressive. Yeah, you're only 25. I, I just, I can't believe the success you've already had, and I'm really looking forward to hearing about your journey. Uh, could you start off by just telling us more about this radioisotope power system developed by Zeno and how it differs from traditional nuclear power systems?
2: Absolutely. And thank you for uh, having me on here today. Excited to chat more about the work that we're doing. So when most people think of nuclear technologies, they think of nuclear reactors. And this is a traditional form of nuclear reactor that uses fission, where we take uranium, we hit it with neutrons, the uranium splits, we get heat, more neutrons, hits more uranium, splits, we get heat, we use that heat, boil water, get electricity. And these are nuclear reactors that are used in the United States and throughout the world to provide in the US you know, close to 20% of our energy. We are building a very different and far less known form of a nuclear technology called radioisotope power systems as you mentioned, nuclear batteries of sorts. And these are very small systems, things the size of shoeboxes that convert the heat from decaying radioisotopes into electricity. Hot rocks that are decaying over decades, we shield the radiation, convert that heat into electricity, And you have something the size of a box, a microwave oven, or a shoebox that is generating electricity for decades. And this is not a new technology. This is a technology that NASA has used historically to power all of our deep space spacecrafts. Voyager, Cassini, Mars Rovers, the US Air Force, and Navy have used them in the past as well to power remote sensors and naval buoys. And these legacy systems have always either used an isotope plutonium-238 or strontium-90. And NASA has used plutonium for all their deep space spacecrafts. And plutonium is a terrific isotope. It has great thermal properties. It's very easy to shield so we can build lightweight, long endurance systems that will power Mars rovers. But it is an isotope that is relatively difficult to produce. And because of that, there is not a lot of it, only enough for NASA to power one to two of these systems per decade, perfect for those missions, but not great for a lot of broader usability. Now, strontium-90 is an isotope that the US Air Force and Navy used historically to power remote sensors and naval buoys. And it's a far more abundant, really, nuclear waste product as fuel, a byproduct of nuclear reactors that we use to power a lot of our country. And because of this abundance, again, it has been used to build hundreds of these. Um, However, strontium-90 is a bit more difficult to shield. So historically, these systems required really concrete or lead in order for them to be safely used, resulting in very heavy systems. And at Xeno, we got together at Vanderbilt University and started to see a lot of potential for this technology, small, uh, long endurance power systems that could be used in off-grid regions in space on the ground undersea. If we can find a way to build a radioisotope power system that is affordable, lightweight, and scalable, a combination that hasn't happened before. And over the past couple of years, again, starting out at Vanderbilt, tech development really beginning in 2019 up until today and in the future, we have developed a radioisotope power system using Strontium-90, that available, abundant uh, nuclear waste product, but in a lightweight form factor with a novel fuel and shielding design, allowing us for the first time to build a commercially built radioisotope power system that is affordable, lightweight, and scalable, that can be used much more broadly than these legacy systems in space and on Earth.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, I do want to talk about, yeah, those applications on space and on Earth. Can you tell me about the specific uses of this system that you're most interested in right now and Xeno is most interested in right now?
2: Yeah, so more more broadly, our vision is to take developing areas of the world, whether that is on the surface of the moon, regions of space in the Arctic, on the seabed, and provide clean and reliable power that allows them to develop. And Xeno started really with this recognition that in a lot of those regions today, whether this is... Companies, governments, or humans have a, a difficulty to operate in those regions because of the lack of access of energy. And that a radioisotope power system, a battery that lasts for decades, a power system that lasts for decades. If we can build these in a lightweight and um, affordable form factor, that could have a lot of usability in those domains. So again, broader term division, as you mentioned, is to provide clean plug-and play power in all of these developing areas to help them develop. Now in the near term, we are primarily focused on space and maritime regions. These are regions where power is extremely challenging in certain domains and where we've seen a lot of draw from initial customers, both in the government and commercially. So as you know, you saw and you mentioned here, a couple of weeks ago, we announced a $30 million program with the US Space Force to power as satellites providing constant power and constant propulsion to enable a lot of new capabilities for the Space Force, but also more broadly the commercial space industry. And we have some other contracts in the near future um, both in space and on Earth that we will be announcing soon that we are uh, quite excited about.
0: Wow, I think that's really incredible. Kind of your ambitions to bring power to areas of the world that haven't necessarily been given the chance to have this type of power. I do wonder, are you, do you have any designs to use this power for the greater decarbonization of like the US economy or the world economy?
2: Absolutely. You look at a lot of these places on the edge, whether that is in Alaska, again, broader Arctic communities and island communities, a lot of places that rely on diesel because you're in places where solar power doesn't necessarily work. And these regions are flying in diesel on airplanes multiple times a year because they're extremely challenging to get to. And these are regions that are ripe for small nuclear energy where you could have these systems brought there. And for 10 years, supply clean, reliable power and reduce the reliance on carbon-based fuels um, such as diesel.
0: Great. Yeah. And can you talk more about the reliability of this energy system? You're planning on putting these compact power systems in the bottom of the ocean, on top of the moon, and they're very like diverse environments. And how, how I guess, do you ensure that this system is safe, that it doesn't harm or potentially shift natural environments in dangerous ways in the long term?
2: Yeah, those are great questions. And, you know, fortunately, a lot of what we're doing is following precedents from the past. Radioisotope power systems have been placed on the seabed. They've been placed on the moon. They've been launched into deep space. And in all of these scenarios, there has been significant studies from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, from naval reactors, from NASA, ensuring that placing these systems in those regions will be safe. They've engaged with environmental groups throughout all of the, the years of deployment as well to ensure that. And similarly to that, um, you know, our deployments will be safe because of the regulations that ensure that they are safe. We're working closely with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission as we work to build these. We're engaged with the proper regulators as we work to launch these into space. We have to go through extremely stringent tests and meet stringent requirements to ensure the safety both in developing these systems and deploying them to ensure that both uh in transit to their destination, and once in operation, that they will be safe. And you, know, you mentioned reliability. That really is the biggest benefit of this technology over anything else. This is just constant decay of radioisotopes producing heat, and you convert that heat into electricity. And you look at Voyager 2, a spacecraft that was launched over 40 years ago that is in interstellar space outside of our solar system. The first man-made object ever leave our solar system. It has been powered by you know, a very similar technology to ours um, and is really the uh, biggest example, the greatest example of the reliability and the resiliency of radioisotope power systems.
0: Okay. Could you elaborate more on your relationship with the Department of Defense? How did your company get connected with people interested in these power systems? You started off, what, 18, 19 years old with this project and now you're working with like space force and yeah, I'd I'd love to hear how you built those connections.
2: Yeah, so the Department of Defense has done a really great job over the past couple years of opening itself up for work with startups. And we actually first started engaging with this uh, the Air Force through a program called AthWorks, an innovation group in the Air Force. And there's a program in the DoD called the SBIR Program, the Small Business Innovation Research Program, which provides funding to early stage startups and universities that are working on technologies that could help support Department of Defense missions. And prior to AFWorks, most of these SBIR solicitations that came out were for very specific technologies that the Department of Defense could need. But what they started to realize was that there was a lot of amazing work being done with startups in the United States that weren't able to necessarily meet these very specific topics, but there still could be a lot of value to the Department of Defense to work with these startups. So AFWorks, this innovation group in the Air Force, again, started a new program where they had an open topic, where it was simply just a call for all technologies that people are working on that could have applicability to be used for the Department of Defense. And if you submitted it and they thought that there could be a good chance this could support the Department of Defense, they awarded you a $50,000 phase one contract. And this money was not to be used on any technology development, but rather to engage with stakeholders in the Air Force and across the DoD and see if there is a problem that this technology could solve. And the goal of this phase one effort was to get a memorandum of understanding from one of these stakeholders to say that if this was built, I would potentially be interested in using that. And if you were successful in getting that, you could apply for a phase two contract up to about $1.875 million at the time to actually start technology development. So this program was really our first entryway into working with the Department of Defense. And in late 2018, we were able to get that first phase one SBIR, that $50,000 contract. We were then able to convert that into a phase two contract. That was about $1.3 million in the summer of 2019. And that was really the funding that along with some private capital that we raised at that time, that allowed us to really begin our technology development. So at the beginning, the Department of Defense, you know, really made it easy for startups to work with them, like us, and we're able to kind of get our foot in the door. And the Department of Defense, and specifically the Air Force, and now Space Force, became an area for us to receive research and development dollars to begin developing this technology. Now, over time, it is great to receive R and D funding from the government. But what is more exciting is when the government be- can become an actual customer. And of course, you know more broadly as Xena, you know, we want to be a commercial facing company, selling our technology to commercial space, maritime, terrestrial companies, but see a lot of value in having the Department of Defense and the government as an anchor and early customer to help us de-risk this technology and also support their very important missions. Um, and we're able to kind of get to this next step of engaging with the Department of Defense through what's called the Air Force strat Program, a strategic funding increase program. And the way this worked was um, the Department of Defense recognized that $1.5, $1.875 million is great, but that's not enough to really get technologies built for many uh, more complicated technologies like ours. And in this program, uh, you were able to get actually up to $30 million of government funding, but you had to have matching funds from private investments and also other stakeholders in the government. And that is what ultimately led to the contract that, again, we announced a couple of weeks ago, where we we were able to get a $30 million program with $15 million of government funding and $15 million of private funding that brings us this funding to build this first nuclear powered satellite for the Space Force uh, to be delivered in 2025. So it kind of was this, you know, a slow buildup, you know, a stepping stone approach of crawl, walk, run approach to our engagement with the Department of Defense, where it started very early on with these smaller awards. And slowly, as we built more uh, support within the Department of Defense, as we de-risked the technology, we're able to increase the size of these contracts at a point where we're now going to be delivering a full operational system to the Space Force uh, you know, in the next two years.
0: That is, yeah, quite a journey. So now, can you tell us, from like the start of your vision of this company to now, What have been the biggest challenges you've faced, you and your team?
2: Yeah, you know, I think a lot of the biggest challenges have been, you know, you kind of hinted at this, and I briefly talked about it, that, um, you know, we are working in a uh, industry that works with the government a lot, whether that is the Department of Energy or NASA or the Department of Defense. And these are complex organizations that are not extremely straightforward of how to work with them. And I think that was a lot of our early challenges was the fact that, yes, we started this my Sophomore year in undergrad, I was a computer science major, certainly didn't know how to navigate the halls of Washington, D.C., and a lot of the challenges came with A, learning how to navigate those halls, given that they are critical to the work that we're doing, and B, having to overcome the lack of credibility that we had, especially early on. Early on, we would have meetings at the Pentagon at the Department of Energy, and rightfully so, we'd be met with a heavy amount of skepticism. And one of the things that we did early on that really supported us was build a terrific set of advisors who could help us both understand how to navigate those halls and also bring credibility to the meetings. Uh, One of our first advisors was a professor at Vanderbilt, Steve Kron, who has been with us since day one and a former deputy assistant secretary at the Department of Energy, who early on would join meetings with us. On the Hill with uh, representatives and senators uh, at the Department of Energy at the Pentagon, and could bring his years of expertise to help us have some credibility in those meetings. Um, We also built an advisory board over time that included the most recent uh, Chief of Naval Operations, a top-breaking admiral in the Navy, the former Assistant Secretary of Nuclear Energy at the Department of Energy, a former uh, House member who chaired the House Science Committee, a former Chief Technology Officer of Lockheed Martin, all these people that really understand again, both how to navigate DC, and can also help us bring credibility to meetings, which has been um, was extremely valuable early on and today. Now, over time, we've, of course, learned a lot. We built a lot of relationships on our own, and we've started to build more credibility just by the technology development that we have done and the contracts that we've won. Um, but early on, you know, those really were the, the biggest challenges that we faced, and uh, building a set of great advisors was really the, the key for us to overcome those.
0: Uh, I don't know really what form this would take, but do you feel like you've received any political pushback or do you think that energy and nuclear and clean energy is a pretty bipartisan issue?
2: No, we, we really haven't received a lot of political pushback. And nuclear energy, really over the last decade, has been one of the arguably few bipartisan issues. And it's for multiple reasons on different sides. Um, but you know, if you look at uh, a lot of bills that have been passed over the past even five years, there's been about half a dozen bills that have supported nuclear innovation, that have streamlined nuclear regulatory approvals, that have supported nuclear supply chains and funding advanced nuclear technologies. And almost all of these have passed the Senate 96 to 3, 98 to 1, um, you know, really strong bipartisan support for nuclear energy. And I think that there's multiple tailwinds for the industry right now. You know, first, there is this recognition that nuclear is critical to meet our climate and carbon emission goals. Um, you know, and you were seeing this recognition from both sides of the aisle, the nuclear has to be a part of the equation. And this is not nuclear versus solar, wind, energy storage. This is nuclear and solar, wind, energy storage, geothermal, hydro. We need all of the clean energy sources that we have today and can develop and build more of all of these in order to reduce our carbon emissions and increase the energy that we have in this country. So I think that is the first side. And second, you know, you look at what has happened with the war in Ukraine and Germany's reliance on Russian oil, and you look at um, you know, decoupling with China, and you're starting to see a lot of interest in onshoring domestic energy supply chains. And nuclear is a great example where we can have a domestic supply of uranium, um, and we don't have to necessarily rely on other countries or adversaries uh, to support us with the energy that we need. So there's a whole energy security angle of this as well. Um, combined with the need for nuclear to meet our climate goals uh, that has really led to broad bipartisan support for nuclear. And for us specifically, we also have the fact that we are using a nuclear waste product as fuel. Um, You know, one of the big uh, strikes against nuclear is use nuclear fuel and nuclear waste. And while, um, you know, we do have solutions and it is safe today, uh, you know, we don't have a long term solution for it today. And that is a talking point against it frequently. But the fact that we are using what is right now nuclear waste material and reusing it to support space exploration, provide clean, reliable power on and off the Earth, uh, you know, we also um, have a great argument for that uh, that only helps us, you know, really build bipartisan support for the work that we're doing.
0: Okay, well, my last question. Forest Fireside Chats is a very solutions-oriented, positive podcast to bring a little bit of light to the environmental movement. Do you have any advice for young people, entrepreneurs, small businesses on ways that they can use what they know and what they're passionate about to transition the economy towards a sustainable carbon-free future?
2: Yeah, you know, I think my my overarching theme here, and this is a little cliche, but I'll kind of back into it, is to dream big and do not think that you are too young or not knowledgeable enough about an area to pursue an idea that you're passionate about. I was a computer science at Vanderbilt computer science major at Vanderbilt who thought that I was going to be working at Google, Facebook or Amazon as a software engineer and a friend of mine started talking about this idea about the need for clean reliable power in these off-grid places. We met with a professor, we got in touch with a grad student. We ended up getting a little seed funding from the National Science Foundation. We still knew nothing but we persevered. We Got a lot of no's, a lot of people who said that we weren't knowledgeable enough, that we were going after a crazy idea that it was never gonna work, and we persevered. And you know, here we are five years later, and we still have a very long way towards success. Um, but we've made a lot of progress over the past five years, uh, given the fact that we started again with very little knowledge in this area. And frankly, um, we had no right to even consider starting this company at the time. So, you know, I think I see a lot of young people who are very passionate about climate, very passionate about the environmental movement that we're all a part of right now, and feel that they need to wait until it's their turn to really take that big step and start that company, start that nonprofit, start that podcast, do what you can do to really support this. Um, And I don't think that's the case. You know, you don't, it it can be helpful to have that, um, but if you're passionate enough, if you have that grit and you surround yourself with a lot of smart people that can balance out uh, weaknesses of yours, um, you know, there really isn't anything that is too too daunting to take on.
0: That is a beautiful ending. Thank you so so much. Uh, I learned a lot and I'm definitely gonna keep my eye on Xeno the future to see where you all go. I wish you the best of luck.
2: Terrific. Thank you so much for having me on. Really enjoy chatting.
0: This month, and in all future months, we will be telling a sustainability story in the sustainability tip. The June sustainability story focuses on environmental activism. in
2: in in
0: In a world grappling with the urgent need for environmental action, a new generation has risen to the forefront of the fight. Gen Z, a cohort of young activists driven by a deep sense of urgency and a desire for change, has harnessed their collective voice to address the looming threat of climate change. But what does it mean for Gen Z to lead an environmental movement? And how can their activism be both positive and impactful? To explore these questions, we turn to Jacqueline Zimmerman, a research fellow at the Project on International Peace and Security. Her recent project titled, Dissent and Disillusionment, the birth of a Gen Z-led environmental populist movement, delves into the power and potential of Gen Z activism.
3: Activism and collectively mitigating efforts can take a lot of forms. So people are incorporating sustainability into their lives in so many ways, becoming increasingly plant-based or buying secondhand clothes. But it's not just those types of things. Studies are finding that millennials and Gen Z are opting not to have children because of environmental concerns. So this frame of mind, this constant state of climate anxiety is impacting decisions from the day to day to the life changing, both big and small. These are typically things that young people tend to focus on. And so feeling like you are the only one with this anxiety, with these changes, these things that you're thinking about all the time is isolating and is, is really easy to sort of rally people around, rally a specific group of people around
0: which gives rise to an extremely powerful Gen Z-led environmental movement. I think we can all agree that consistent, healthy environmental activism is key to achieving lasting change. But what does this entail?
3: So to me, I think healthy environmental activism is informed and it has a clear goal and it has a clear audience. So you know what you're doing and why, and you know who your audience is, how they'll receive your actions, And most importantly, what ways they can take their own actionable steps from your activism, whether it be joining
0: your movement, you know, writing a policymaker themselves. Gen Z activism has gained significant traction in both social media and the news. With their strong digital presence and use of social platforms, Gen Z activists have harnessed the power of hashtags, viral challenges and online campaigns to spread their message far and wide. Their ability to mobilize and organize online has allowed them to quickly gather support and raise awareness on pressing environmental issues. And mainstream media has recognized the significance of Gen Z activism, dedicating coverage and highlighting their efforts on news platforms. But at what point is a powerful movement like this at risk of becoming performative? In Jacqueline's research, she also dove into the risks associated with Gen Z environmental activism.
3: Populism as a rhetorical style, and in some cases a tool, can be defined by divisive tactics that rally and uphold one group and then demonize another. So as polarization increases, this kind of begets more populist tendencies. Environmental populism would use populist rhetoric applied to environmental causes, in this case, global climate change. So an environmental movement might represent themselves as a pure us collective with the them being anyone from policymakers who have failed to act on the environment, big business, particularly in the oil and gas industries and climate change deniers. So populist rhetoric is already being applied to environmental movements resulting in the rhetorical story of old sort of elites attempting to steal innocent young people's futures in favor of profits and fossil fuels. In the worst case scenarios, I see a collective of young people taking on these tactics that can result in democratic backsliding, violence that risks crackdown, and the potential
0: for adversaries to sort of meddle with a movement that's already so disillusioned. We then asked her about her inspiration to study this topic.
3: We were seeing activists from Stop Big Oil engaging in civil disobedience by throwing soup at Van Gogh's sunflowers and gluing their hands to the wall, uh, if you remember that story. So these types of of big demonstrations are increasingly common among European groups like Extinction Rebellion and Last Generation. And so I started to think about how this might look in our polarized society. And so while I, I started to love this idea of collective action, it became increasingly apparent to me that this could be
0: a slippery slope, especially for young people. Jacqueline is referring to recent actions by the activist collective she mentioned, like Just Stop Oil, that have been the target of sharp criticism from older generations. These groups host very high-profile rallies and have engaged in nonviolent civil resistance to make their point in public spaces. They've closed roads, thrown soup at Vincent Van sunflowers, glued themselves to famous paintings, interrupted soccer matches and other sporting events, and targeted high-profile events to share their messaging. On a personal level, engaging environmental activism and supporting the Gen Z environmental movement provides a sense of purpose and fulfillment allowing individuals to align their values with their actions by actively participating individuals become more knowledgeable about environmental issues develop critical thinking skills and cultivate a sense of agency to affect change environmental activism encourages personal growth by fostering resilience empathy and leadership qualities and of course supporting the gen z environmental movement brings about global benefits the collective efforts of gen z activists raise awareness on urgent environmental challenges, pushing these issues to the forefront of public discourse and policy agendas. By amplifying their voices and demanding action, Gen Z activists inspire societal transformation and policy reforms, leading to a more sustainable future for all. Through their activism, they catalyze systemic change, promote sustainable practices, and advocate for environmental justice, creating a healthy and more equitable world for future generations. So how can you get involved? I think the easiest way is to start with the big groups. You can take those ideas from them
3: that you like, and maybe if you see flaws in their methodology or in some of their rhetoric, leave those. Then I think start making changes where you can. There's a group at William & Mary Carbon Fee and Dividend Movement, and they're doing great work, but their whole theory is that being on a college campus, you can make changes within your community and you have so much reach of like-minded people. So they have signs with an easy to access link to write policymakers and encourage more and more people to carry signs to indicate that you're sort of with this idea for what they believe is the most effective climate policy. And they've been working with people in, in Citizens Climate Lobby. So I think that sort of example coming out as I was doing this project is emblematic of ways that collective action is not a slippery slope and it can be engaging for a lot of people.
0: As we navigate the complexities of environmental activism, it is crucial to recognize the potential of Gen Z-led movements. By fostering informed, inclusive, and goal-oriented activism, we can harness the energy and passion of this generation to create a sustainable future for all. If you are interested in getting involved but don't know where to start, DM Forest Fireside Chats on Instagram and we will help point you in the right direction. we are going to start doing questions of the month. I really encourage all of you to submit questions by emailing us. Our email is forestfiresidechats at gmail.com and you can also find that email in our newsletter which all of you should sign up for. But just to give you an example of the type of question you can ask and you can really ask anything. I had my producer Elsa send me a question. She asked with recent landmark Supreme Court cases like West Virginia v. EPA that hurt the Clean Air Act and SAC of EPA that hurt the Clean Water Act. Is there any hope to overturn or challenge these decisions? Or what could be done to fix these major blows to the EPA's authority to create environmental law? So I did a little research and this is what I found. Supreme Court decisions have a significant impact on the interpretation and implementation of environmental laws especially the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. So when decisions like this come out that reduce the, the historical power of this legislation, there are a few things that, that the United States and the EPA can do. For one, we have legislative action. Congress has the power to amend existing environmental laws or to create new ones that clarify or reinforce the authority of the EPA in regulating air and water pollution. This obviously depends on the political climate and the priorities of Congress and the executive office, but yeah, lawmakers can introduce bills to address concerns raised by Supreme Court decisions. Next, the EPA can work within the framework set by the Supreme Court decisions to issue revised regulations or guidance documents that align with the court's interpretation. So, for example, with West Virginia EPA, the Supreme Court decision was in reference to the Obama administration's Clean Power Plan. And certain parts of the Clean Power Plan were invalidated and certain parts were upheld. So, one of the provisions that was invalidated was that the court ruled that the EPA lacked authority to regulate emissions from existing power plants based on generation shifting mechanisms. Generation shifting mechanisms refer to the process of shifting electricity generation from conventional fossil fuel based power plants to alternative clean energy sources, such as solar or wind power. And yet the Supreme Court ruled that Congress did not grant the EPA the authority to regulate emissions from existing power plants based on generation shifting mechanisms, meaning the EPA's ability to force regulations related to shifting power from fossil fuels to clean energy as part of the CPP. But on the other hand, if the EPA chooses to focus on emissions reduction technologies in regulating greenhouse gas emissions, this part of the CPP was upheld. The court upheld the EPA's authority to regulate emissions at existing power plants through emissions reduction technologies. And I've talked about this on the podcast before, the EPA has introduced regulations to encourage emissions reduction technologies that regulate the amount of greenhouse gases coming from power plants. So this is one thing that the EPA has already done to circumvent this landmark Supreme Court case. So the third thing I want to talk about is legal challenges. Obviously overturning or challenging Supreme Court decisions is very difficult, but if new cases are brought forward, with different legal arguments or different facts, these these new cases can challenge the court's rulings. And typically these are brought by environmental advocacy groups, affected parties, or even government agencies can bring these cases forward. The last thing I quickly wanna talk about is that Supreme Court decisions can vary over time with different administrations, changes in the court's composition, and changes in societal attitudes, interpretation and in the application of the laws Certain to change. I also truly believe that public opinion and advocacy efforts can influence policymakers and even our Supreme Court justices. Joining advocacy groups, donating to advocacy groups like what we talked about today with the Gen Z environmental movement, movements like the Sunrise Movement and Youth v. Gov, especially Youth v. Gov, which I encourage all of you to look up. These organizations are going to be the ones that push the Supreme Court to uphold the power of the EPA and the power of administrative law to keep our air clean, to keep our water clean, and to protect our environment. Okay, that's all I have for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please submit a question, sign up for our newsletter, go follow us on Instagram, and donate if you can. If you are excited by these episodes and you enjoy hearing about the environment and learning about different stories related to sustainability in the United States. Donate to our GoFundMe. We are really happy to do this, but it takes a lot of work. And I really thank my team for putting up with me and putting up with this project. I have had a lot of fun, but yeah, it's been a lot of work. So uh, yeah, we really appreciate any support you all can give. Okay. I hope you have a great month of July. Happy 4th. And I will be back again tomorrow.